Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. This week, we're joined by John Marchant, curator, gallerist and artist collaborator. He shares his pivotal Damascene moment, an incredible journey from suburban life to shaping the creative scene. John's story unfolds from influential work with iconic fashion label Body Map to a lasting relationship with artist Jamie Reed, famed for the iconic Sex Pistols God Save the Queen cover. Today, he manages the artist's archive, spanning collaborations with bands like Dead Kennedys and Afro-Celt Sound System, protest art for anti-poll tax alliance and engagement with Pussy Riot. John's New York stint sparked a lasting collaboration with photographer Nan Golden too, who was amplifying awareness of the opioid crisis and exposed the Sackler family's role within it you'll probably have heard of. Listen to the end for John's sage advice he'd offer his younger self and his call to arms to you. John, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you today. Thank you so much for making time after such a, a busy old time of it you've been having of late. But um, welcome and thank you for joining the Extraordinary Creatives podcast. Now, My it's pleasure. a real delight for me to check in with you because you're in a, a different spot than the last time we met. But maybe you could say, where, where are you based at the moment, John? Well, physically, we're in Brighton. Uh, straight south 150 miles south of london and um yeah we've been a fairly been a fairly roundabout route i was in traveling last week but we had a big group show opening at the gallery on saturday so mm. so here we are and that ga- that gallery is in a, a space that you negotiated in your local town is that right correct yeah yeah it's right in the right in the center of town it's a very discreet in fact i often get First time visitors moaning at me that they couldn't find it. Ah, the it's best fun. kind of gallery. It, yeah, it makes it a bit more exciting when once you've actually found it. Although I did have somebody on Saturday saying, <laughs> I've been trying to find you for two months, <laughs> which is quite extreme. They could have just called me. I would have guided them in. <laughs> well, that's commitment. But, yeah. That is commitment. But yeah, bless them, at least they came back. Eventually. That's yeah, amazing. Eventually, yeah. yeah. And the show that you've just opened something that you've put together yeah it's a group show called light years ahead which is uh as we were saying it's a survey of earth guardianship and goddess worship mm. so it's a combination i mean it actually kind of focuses on uh well our, our central totem is the artist monica zoo which is actually pronounced who i believe but it's spelled s-j-o-o mm-hmm. it's a swedish bristolian artist who uh, made some very controversial work in her time, um, not least the uh, her, she's, her most famous painting is called God Giving Birth, which mm. outraged the good burghers of uh, various towns for quite a quite a long time. Uh, because it actually it it actually showed somebody giving birth, which is apparently is disgusting and terrible. <laughs> it's yeah. astonishing, really, what passes and what passes for outrage these days. Um, but in that show, we have uh, video, drawing, painting, um, banners, political mm. pamphlets. It's 
good. Beautiful. And yeah. what was your motivation for putting that show together? Well, it's timely, isn't it? We we need to mm. we need to stand up and be counted. But it's also uh, that I should point out that every artist is in, including the show is a woman, mm-hmm. and um, you know as. One of my artists I work, work with a great deal, I'll come back to, is a chap called Jamie Reed, and we were talking about inclusion and stuff like that not so long ago. And he said, I thought art was about ideas. And I said, well, it's also about voices, Jamie. Mm. So, I mean, I know we've had a, a – there has recently been a lot of discussion about about trying to redress imbalance, gender imbalance and uh, um, ethnic imbalance as well. But, you know, whatever we can do to help – in that uh, process i'm more than happy to do mm. and the artist that you've chosen to be in it what was it mm. about their work that spoke to you uh well we wanted a variety of things um somebody like grace Naritu, um you know her works i don't know if you'd know her work but she she's a magical magical artist with extraordinary energy and she's precisely the kind of person we want to gather around really because she's got amazing things to say mm. other artists are a little quieter perhaps um more reflective jess malak for example she has a very uh both these artists actually have shamanic practices but they're a little different in the way they approach what they do um jess is a bit more internal mm. and so the their uh the voices are equally valid but they, they come with a different tone you know, mm. so we want to cover a range of different uh, different voices. Well, I think we've we've achieved that. It's I mean the gallery is quite small. It's two small root exhibition rooms. So we've really put a shoulder to the wheel to jam everybody in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but we've done. How did people respond on the opening night? Good. We had an opening day actually instead. We did we, you we, nice. Yeah, we did a little different. We didn't no booze, no uh no kind of outrageous behavior we kept it kept it to a stately saturday afternoon nice uh, bottles of water and good conversation rather than good conversation yeah Yeah, i love that that? yeah i do and actually i really appreciate an afternoon opening um partly because i'm i myself i'm not drinking um and but also the conversation, actually the depth of conversation that we're seeking around creativity. I think it's incredibly important that those moments, those intimate moments are facilitated in safe spaces for discussion. And I think, would it be fair to say, John, that you're interested and drawn to artists who like to, they have a political in their work, sometimes with a smaller and sometimes with a larger P. Uh, guilty. <laughs> okay. Guilty so, as charged. Yeah, guilty as charged. So there are a couple of artists I do work with that, that have less of that or it's less less apparent. Mm. But for the most part, yes, I, I can't help that. I can't mm. help but be drawn to people that have that are politically active and that it, it comes through in some way in their work. And it, it needn't be uh extremely overt but certainly in terms of sexual politics for example it's mm-hmm. something which, which I've, I've got my eye on that and i want to make sure that we that we're trying to um put the right kind of noises out there as best we can mm. yeah. could you do us the honor of 
taking us back in time to help us understand where some of those motivations might come from, might stem from. Where did your creative journey start? Gosh, it was a very, very, very long time ago. I'll tell you that for free. I'm with you. And I grew up in a service family, actually, the naval family in uh, darkest suburbia. Mm. And I was raised really to be part of the um, service system. Mm. And I remember very clearly, actually, my Damascene moment. It was yeah. quite something. And I, I opened a very, very early copy of ID magazine. Oh, This was about 1984, I think it was. And in there was a spread of photographs of the um, fashion design duo Body Map. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. And I looked at this thing and I was like, this massive thing was clanging in my head saying, you do not have to conform to what you're being raised for. Yes. There's something completely different out there. And all you got to do is go and get it. Oh, I love that. Oh, my God. It still gives me this chills thinking mm. about that moment, actually, because it really changed my life seeing that thing. And uh, due to uh, an extraordinary series of coincidences, I guess, which my life has been party to, I have to confess, I ended up working for Body Map. Amazing. And um, and that really set me on a path. That really, really set me on a path of like, when you see an opportunity or something, even if it seems kind of crazy, grab that thing. Do you know, you I'm might so... Another, might not get another chance. I'm so glad you said that. Firstly, the importance of creatives putting their work out there and daring to be seen and daring to tread the path less trodden because there is somebody waiting for it. And that happened to be you. But I also know lots of other people obviously connected with Body Map's work, which is amazing. But also the intention that you decide, you had this really powerful moment and you set an intention and then you gravitated to it. It pulled you. So tell us, how did, how did you get to work with Body Map? Um, well, I went to college in Leeds and I found it deadly dull, I confess. I really found <laughs> it dull. I met some wonderful people, but I really didn't need to study Michelangelo any, again. I really didn't. Are you studying art um, history or art? Yes, I did art history. Art history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd already been spending a fair bit of time in, in nightclubs, I have to say, Kerry, as my dark, as you do, horrible, tawdry past. Yep. And um, it was inevitable, really, that I was going to be spending a bit more time in London than I should have been in Leeds studying. Yeah. And as you do, you meet somebody, you meet somebody else, and then suddenly you hear that there's a job going. And essentially, uh, I called up Stevie and David and said, I hear, you know, you need some assistance and I'm here for you. I'm coming in. That was it. Where that did those brass balls come from? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. But it, but I'd also, I had also by that time, I'd also been doing a bit of work for um, a very interesting design 
group uh, who worked under the name of the House of Beauty and Culture. Oh, and nice. Hoback was based out of a, an extraordinary building in, in uh, Dalston that had been set up by a shoe designer called John Moore. And John and his compadres being Judy Blame, uh, Dave Baby, Richard Torrey, Christopher Nemeth, they set up something which is still talked about now in hushed tones. And once again, I was one of the very few people that actually went through the door there, and I was there. It was supposed to be a kind of workshop, but actually usually the door was usually locked. So people <laughs> people would uh, come on pilgrimages from Tokyo to come to the House wow. of Beauty and Culture and couldn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> could you ever get out? <laughs> yeah, you could get out sometimes. <laughs> But um, and what yeah, went on behind closed doors, John? Ex- an extraordinary high level of creativity. That's what went on. So that, that's why now the VNA, Kim Jones, people like that—they're absolutely desperate to find out more about the inner workings of the House of Beauty and Culture and collect things because it was—it uh, was an explosive moment in many ways, though in this sort of mid to late eighties, anyway, and. Mm. Uh, I credit that period with a lot of my um, aesthetic, I have to say. Mm. And what was your contribution in in that time? Sweat. <laughs> okay, graft. You, yeah, were you, a, you were a, a creative grafter. No, I was just grafting away, running around, running things, going to see people on behalf of other people and, and, just, and just trying to make a terrible job probably of trying to make myself useful. Uh-huh. But, uh, but there we are. It was a formative time. Yeah. So okay. from that moment, it, that led to the body map experience. Yeah, basically, yes. It yeah. Did. It did okay. Comedy, and during that body map experience, what kinds of things did you guys get up to? Um, what was it? What were we doing? I'll tell you what I did do religiously every week was man the stall in Camden Market. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so you're coming face to face with customers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, on all their glories and their f- strange ways and funny colours and stuff like that. Yeah, Brilliant. So, yeah, yeah. And what, was, what kind of thing were you wearing at the time, John? Oh, I was very staid, Kerry. Were you? Were you, were you in a kind of Gilbert and George get up whilst <laughs> everyone else was in their peacock refinery? No, 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 not quite. I, I still have this fantastic jumper that i wore a lot actually because it was very cold in camden market which had a whole series of slashes through it so it was one of the famous slash jumper oh wow Slash jumper i still have that they're beautifully made and of course now very very uh collectible mm, amazing and, gosh, so it's a long time ago kerry no but it's amazing because i think there's something that i'm getting here that it, one of the reasons i wanted to speak to you is because there's a real spirit in the people that you're attracted to and that are attracted to you. And so there's something in the, obviously the creative skills, craft, ambition of the people that you found yourself working with, but there's also a kind of community around these people. Mm. And so I'm curious, it, it was curiosity that led you to these people, but that thing that you were searching for, which is almost the antithesis, I imagine, of, of what you, where you could have ended up. Quite. I think you're absolutely right, actually. Um, um, I moved from, essentially, I moved 
to Brixton and lived in Brixton for many, many years. And uh, the idea of community was something almost new to me, to be perfectly honest, mm -hmm. because as those people that have grown up in a um, semi-detached suburban living morgue, like I did, <laughs> a morgue for the living at least, know that you don't, there is no community really in these places. So it was mm -hmm. a shock to discover that people would talk to each other on the street and be doing things in their own area to enliven and enrich the lives of the people around them. Mm. So for um, those, those that don't know, Brixton in South London mm. um, at that time was mm. a heady mix of characters, wasn't it? It was, wasn't it? Yes. Could, you, a... could you describe the kinds of um, <laughs> life that you found on oh, Brixton gosh. streets at that time? Here's a little story to illustrate that. The cinema there by Brixton Station, the Ritzy Cinema, is now a kind of, it's not a multiplex, but there is an, a multi-screen art cinema, and it's very nice, it has to be said, and it's well worth a visit for anybody that doesn't know it. But in the olden day, in the medieval times, the Ritzy was a one-screen, sticky-floored flea pit, basically, but it was glorious. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they used to hold uh, special nights for Hong Kong action movies. Oh, amazing. And there was famously, there was a guy that would come along to these movies with a loaded pistol. <laughs> My and <God>. when, <laughs> when she was kicking off on screen, he would shoot the screen up as well. <laughs> So come on, I mean that's delightful, isn't it? You can't you can't resist that. <laughs> yeah, it would get me to Brixton, that's for right, sure. Exactly. <laughs> there we are. But there were also there were thriving markets. Yeah, exactly. There were a mix of age ranges, cultures, yeah. food, oh, glorious yes. kind of collision, yeah. a mashup, yeah. but also Absolutely. a mashup of in the British society, of course, we have the class system, which yes. you alluded to, and yeah. uh, growing up in kind of middle-class suburbia. This must have been a uh, a real sort of uh, a brew for your senses. Oh, it was delicious. It was a delicious brew, Kerry. It really, really was. But I think, I think if I can, I think maybe this is the first time I'm going to use this word uh, during this discussion, but it's something which I, which, um, is common throughout my life is is a, I'm a curious person mm. and my curiosity was really peaked in Brixton and mm. in these communities because it was it was um outside of my comfort zone really and therefore fascinating to me mm. working with body map it has to be said also and and uh, at Hoback was uh fabulous to me as well as a kind of classic middle-class white straight boy suddenly being thrown into what would now be considered a very LGBTQ situation. Mm. And these people embraced me, actually, and I, God knows why. I have no idea why they did, but somehow I passed. I passed muster, and uh, it was um, terrifically liberating and yes. uh, exciting for me. This uh, quality that you developed of putting yourself in situations that maybe might not be so comfortable for others seems to have stood you in good stead over oh, the years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so from Body Map, what came next? Music business. Mm, tell us. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I spent six years in the music business. Um, meeting again, meeting all sorts of marvelous people and doing ridiculous things. And uh, at like... one point, well, uh, we'd made the record company small. I was working for a very small record company, but doing good stuff um on portobello road and the label we earn a lot of money and we had sort of like a big pile of cash on the table and was looking at these gold dull gold doubloons thinking what are we going to do with it amazing so what did we do with it do we invest it in more music nope we started <laughs> moving into film and oh. books, stuff like that amazing. so we started publishing books that we found of interest and uh, and actually, we invested a load of money in the uh, aforementioned Hong Kong action movie scene. <laughs> <laughs> but it's course, a, funny story, a funny little thing here in that um, that was great fun. It was very, it was very, uh, uh, it was hilarious, actually. The whole thing was was ridiculous, but great fun. And we met a lot of very interesting people, had some good, good experiences. But um, where am I going with this story? Uh, but right in the m- middle of all this fun and games where we were, you know, still putting out really interesting records and I was A&Ring some fantastic heavy hardcore punk bands and stuff like that, publishing books, interesting stuff, Harry Cruz and so forth, uh, and working on these films, my partner said, pack your bags, we're moving. We're leaving to America, we're leaving for New York. Oh, And I wow. said, no way, no, no. <laughs> No way, I'm not leaving this. It's too good. Uh, but she uh, persuaded me, and uh, that's where we open a new chapter, the New York period. I suppose. Amazing. What was the call of New York? Adventure. Uh-huh. There was something in New York that your partner identified was for you both. Well, she was at St. Martin's, and uh, that year the whole cohort of St. Martin's uh moved to new york so she already knew and a lot of our new people and i only knew one person in the city the whole in the entire city and that am i allowed to swear on this podcast i'm afraid it's yeah it's my podcast so yes okay good uh, i only knew one person in new york and the last conversation i'd had with that person uh was to say fuck off to him and put the phone down on him <laughs> So he wasn't somebody. He wasn't the person that was going to be at the first at your first phone call. (laughs) Got it. And was your partner at the time in fashion in Central St Martins? Okay, so Central St Martins is one of the best places to study fashion, and in those days would have been amazing. So you've got a fashion set that you've moved to New York with. Yeah, is that right? Okay, pretty much. That's right. And so how did you start finding your feet in New York? And what what year are we in at this point? Uh, mid-90s. Mid-90s. Yeah. And uh, how did I find my feet? Well, I didn't. <laughs> That's the thing. I didn't. I was doing construction work. And uh, I don't, is this? Yeah, construction? Yeah. These are pen pushers' hands. Yeah, they have did a day's work in their life. These are lily-livered <laughs> pen pushers, yeah. delicate little baby hands. I was terrible at it, Kerry. Terrible. I, I was so bad. Where did that idea come from that you could it be in construction? It was the only work I could find. Well, the f- funny enough, that I'd asked somebody I'd met there who ran a uh, uh, a tea shop called Tea and Sympathy. I was talking to to her, saying, um, "Desperate for work. Yeah, I've got to find some work." And she said, "See that guy sitting in the corner. Go and ask him." Wow. 
So I, I sidled up to him and I said, you know, I believe you might know about some work. He looked me up and down like I was a, you know, something for sale, <laughs> which I said, guess I was. <laughs> and he said, um, how do you feel about getting your hands dirty? Now, this is New York, right? So yeah. <laughs> that could mean anything. It could snap, snap. <laughs> So I just said, um, uh, yeah, okay, I can, I don't mind that. And he said, all right, meet me. It was, you know, something like, you know, 5th and 67th, something like tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. So I went up there for half expecting him to hand me a, like a kind of apron. <laughs> with, yeah. yeah. Something, something difficult to handle. Uh, but actually he was working on a construction crew and I started doing that. And as I said, I was so bad at it, Kerry, I gravitated downwards to working. My job was to sweep up on my hands and knees with a dustpan and brush. Mm. And I did that for six months on my knees with a dustpan and brush. And I'll tell you something, it was a good experience for me mm. because I had never done anything like that before. I'd always been uh, really in a position of privilege and good fortune. And life was a breeze until I found myself on my hands and knees in New York City with, uh, you know, sometimes not getting paid. I remember once I got paid in crockery. Oh, handy. Yeah, that's all, exactly <laughs> what we needed. But it did, uh, that time did instill in both myself and my partner at the time, who is still now my wife, mm. it uh, did instill a great sense of resilience Yes. And, uh, you know, and uh, possibility that things things could be exciting and one should grasp these opportunities. Yeah. So you made something of it. You found some work that paid occasionally. Yeah, occasionally. And, and what happened? Yeah, clearly the story doesn't end there. So no, it doesn't, does how it? Did, how did you get yourself out of uh, working for uh, a couple of plates? Well... Remember I mentioned the guy I told to fuck off? Yeah, <laughs> he makes an appearance. I had to call him. <laughs> oh, humble pie. Hello. I had not just, I had about five five helpings of humble pie. So anyway, he was running a big record company uh, on Fourth and Broadway. And he just said, come in and see me. So I went in there and he's sitting behind this massive desk, a corner office at Fourth and Broadway, which is a you know legendary record label, actually, anyway, at the time. And uh, he's on the phone, this guy. And around the walls of his massive office was some artworks by Jamie Reed. Mm. And I'm looking at these, art, these artworks and while he's on the phone, he just puts the phone down. He doesn't mention the fuck off. And he just says to me, Tell me what you know about Jamie Reed. So I told him what I knew. And there was a little pause and he went, I've got a job for you. Oh, wow. Like that. And that job was curating a big exhibition of Jamie's work in New York, which is how I Amazing. got into doing this crazy job. Amazing. And you said yes. I've, well, of course. You said yes. And did you know something of Jamie's work at that time? A little. Yes, I did. I mm. did know something because, you know, by osmosis, you pick up things that are interesting. And um, so I did. I had something to say. And uh, yeah, that was a that turned out to be an enormous challenge to do that. 
job, mm. but I learned a great deal doing it. I learned a huge amount, not least how to navigate the space between the artist and the funder of things, which is often quite a quite a choppy area to navigate. Yeah, because two the two parties don't necessarily want the same thing. Yeah, indeed. I'm going to put a pin in that thought because just for for our audience, some of which will be more familiar with Jamie's work than others, but could you um, give us a little introduction to what his work was that you were working with at that time that you were putting the show on? Um, Jamie Reid, who has sadly just passed away, we just buried him last week, was born in 1947, also in suburbia, in Croydon. And uh, but he came from a very political family um, and a family who were also invested in a kind of spiritual life as well. They, Jamie's great uncle George had been the chief druid of oh. the British Isles, but he'd also right. been Labour MP for Clapham South and a campaigner for workers' rights throughout mm-hmm. all of his life. Very interesting man. Absolute shocking fantasist and a fabulist as well, actually. A very interesting chap. Uh, and um, George had been a great f- figure in the Reed household. And um, politics was something which, uh, politics and campaigning was something that Jamie grew up with. I mean, he'd been um, on the older Marston marches in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mid 60s, he had been uh, at art college with a, a, a fellow student by the name of Malcolm McLaren. Mm. And Jamie and Malcolm were very taken by what happened in Paris in 1968. They thought this was terrific. And um, not least, the actions in Paris by a group of art pranksters called the Situationists. Mm. And um, the Situationists situationists had some very interesting ideas, not least the term situation. The Situationism essentially believes that we are placed as human beings in situations which are not good for us Mm. by architecture, by uh, wider culture, by governments and corporations. And we need to kind of change those situations for ourselves. That's a kind of rough idea of it anyway. And um, when uh, after college, when Malcolm was setting up Sex and Seditionaries, Let It Rock with Vivian, Jamie was founding a an agitprop print collective called Suburban Press in Croydon. And although they they were it was a very political uh publication and they did printing work for other groups as well, all various other political groups. Um Jamie began to kind of develop a, a style of sort of cut and paste, hit and run graphics. Um so when he got the call from Malcolm in 1975 to say, you know, I've got this band, you know, come and work with us, he jumped at it. And, of course, that band was the Sex Pistols. Mm. And, all you know, all the work that Jamie did for the Pistols has become, you know, it's a kind of a global vernacular for protest. Yes. When, that impl- when the Pistols imploded, J- Jamie... Uh, carried on essentially and as, uh, didn't stop until until he died working with protest movements uh working in areas of spirituality uh really assisting people trying to encourage people to find their voice mm. whatever that may be and uh that that hit when i first 
pardon me, when I first met Jamie, I really recognised that he was something much wider, much more e- interesting and deeper than just the guy that did the artwork for the pistols, because the artwork for the pistols was a, actually a political action in itself. And uh, Jamie wouldn't have done it if there hadn't been a political motivation behind those artworks. And uh, that was something which, for some reason, I really can't tell you why, Kerry, that really, really resonated in me. Mm. And our working relationship started then. And uh, despite uh, like a seven year hiatus, which I can we can get to from the late 90s. Um I stayed in touch with Jamie and mm. uh, we worked very, very closely for many, 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 many years. And he's taught me a great deal. Yeah, I think just in that show that you put together, because mm. obviously that would have going f- straight into working with an artist on a big solo show, that's like yeah. an intense relationship, isn't it? Yeah. So that obviously set the scene for how you were to work for years to come. Mm. Thinking about your role within that, you know, how did you find space for yourself to to be the most useful to Jamie at that time? Well, as I said, it was it was difficult because I was being paid by somebody else. Yeah, got you. So I was negotiating the space uh, between the person who wanted to put on show A, and of course Jamie wanted show B. Got you. <laughs> So somehow you've got to find your find the, find yourself in that sliver between A and B. Mm. Did your so market you, stall skills come in handy then? <laughs> I think they must have done, Kerry. <laughs> I think they must have done. Yeah, yeah. I suppose they did. Um, what did you a- negotiate for him? What did you manage to to land and negotiate for him? Well, we pulled off an excellent show. Mm. That's the most important thing. We really pulled off a great show that people still remember very well. And um, that is still my priority, really. How do you work with the artist to really fulfil what the artist wants? And uh, often that's led me into hot water with the galleries. Yeah. Not least with the next artist I work with very extensively. Yes. Which we'll come which we'll come to. So was Jamie happy with that show? As happy yes, as an artist can be with their own shows. Yes, it's true. Jamie. Often they mm-hmm. as, as as many artists who listen to this, who are listening to this podcast, will know after an exhibition, you have a you put your body and soul, your heart, your love, your everything into that exhibition. And when it's up, there's a flat feeling. Yeah. I think a lot of people will recognize that. Yeah. Or you know, or a crash, even. It, precisely yeah. there can definitely be a crash mm. and the really you've just got to put your best foot forward and think about the next one yes and we traveled that exhibition to japan and you know to tokyo athens dublin etc so you know we had something else to th- to pond to think about mm. and what did you learn about seeing jamie's work in those different contexts with different audiences uh, that's a good question because people take different things from artwork, don't they? They, they, mm. some people look at it, look at things briefly. Some people spend a lot of time looking and thinking, mm. and both are acceptable and they're both valid in their way. Mm. And when you are, I mean, that, with an exhibition like Jamie's as well, you're doing something which is a little bit different from other exhibitions, maybe because sometimes with with uh, mm. um, 
with exhibitions, you're you're in, including just a kind of a single body of work. So there's a fairly if you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. clear message mm. with a big retrospective with an artist as broad ranging as jamie you're putting about a thousand messages out at once yeah. and it can be cacophonous and consequently people can be befuddled by things like that but if that's what the artist wants to do then that's what you do yeah so you try you try and make it make the exhibition as um cohesive coherent as possible mm-hmm that's often a challenge actually Kerry when you're doing when you're working with an artist like that um it's hard to think of, of a another example of that a show which has collage pieces and big projections and work on you know painting on canvas and you know bits and bobs record sleeves and things like that all at once people can come away completely confused <laughs> but you've got to try and give them a um a kind of overall not just an overall message, but kind of roots into things so they can discover they could discover their own their own territory within that. Yeah, that's so interesting. So that in a way that that's where a curator's role can be super useful to an artist in being some kind of bridge between the artist and an audience and to to test out those ways of engaging an audience in a way perhaps they hadn't part they hadn't seen when they were in the middle of making the work in the studio and I'm really struck by the fact that Jamie's work um he was really aware of what an image could do in someone's mind's eye in how a message could puncture through things so that's really interesting to me that somebody who actually became a kind of almost like his work became a marketing phenomena in lots of ways, didn't it? In that it carried a message of a of a um, a sort of a genre, uh, a zeitgeist, a time. It kind of represented so many things to so many people, and then it came from this one person. And then this mm. idea, when somebody has got so many of them in them that your job as the curator is to help them articulate it in a way where it could land with one person in Japan or some people in New York or some people over here. And um, I'm curious, was there, was there something, one or two works that seemed to seem to land with people more regularly than others? Good question. What a great question. Well, obviously people want to see the pistol stuff. 
they still want to see the pistol stuff. Yeah. And it has to be said, if you're standing there holding the original collage of, you know, God save the queen with the ransom note lettering her over over her over the queen's eyes, it's it's like holding the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Actually, it's kind of charged with this extreme amount of electricity, yeah. and you can't quite believe you're holding it because yeah. that's been reproduced. Yeah, every in every corner of the of the world, pretty much. Yeah. Um, what else really resonated? There's there's a phrase which Jamie had picked up from the Situationists, which st- is still really popular. Which, whenever we've used it, has all, I mean, it's nothing to do with the pistols, but it's it really it it really touches people, and it's it's simple. Kerry, demand the impossible. Oh, I love that. I love that. Demand yeah. yeah, demand the impossible. And people love that still. They still love that. Mm. You said you learned some things from working with Jamie. I'm sure there's many things. I'm interested in the things you learned about yourself, about what it would take to be the person who could work with somebody like Jamie and be that bridge between him and the world. Gosh. Um, well, it's not the kind of job that you apply for. No. It's a sort of thing that gr- you gravitate towards. You have to kind of gravitate towards each other, really. And uh, I think if we were too alike, it wouldn't have worked. Yes. Because uh, Jamie is a, was a particular artist who would always try to avoid the establishment. But of course, as an artist, you need kind of need the establishment in many ways to progress. So I have often had to uh, wear two hats. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something which I've learned to do over time is to wear either a number of hats or different pairs of glasses all at the same time. Yeah. And that's that's something which I think any curator has to learn to do uh, mm. because you're looking at for the you're looking for the uh you're looking for the drive of the artist's body of work and you're also looking from the audience's perspective and the museum or gallery's perspective as well you're trying to see in all different directions at once mm. i don't know if you can learn it i'm not sure i know there are lots of curatorial courses i think maybe it's one of those skills that you know, you you can do it or you can't. I I really don't know. I don't know because yeah. I'm not a curatorial course. So yes, me neither. But I I, I, so I related to that idea. I, I was used to say to, about myself in working with artists um, in the gallery or curating that I was like the straight man in a comedy duo. <laughs> where, <laughs> you know, yes. I've always said but, I'm like a midwife. Ah, uh, yes. Pulling it out, I'm pulling the baby out, like with all the rubber gloves on, and there's blood everywhere. Oh, nice. Yeah, mine's a little cleaner <laughs> version, I guess. Well, I think. But do you know, I think there is something in. I think just. Great man in the comedy duo. I think for me, there's something in the the determination that you have to help an artist put their vision into the world. And the singularity, you know, of the artist and yourself in in demanding the impossible. 
Because you don't actually know if you can pull it off at the start, do you? You don't really know. You can have a will and where there's a will, there's a way. And that's what you're backing. You're just like, this feels like an okay idea. Yeah. Let's see what can happen. So in your time together, what was the most bonkers thing that you pulled off together? <laughs> well, actually, the, 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 the most bonkers thing, the really bonkers thing, the project which we've just finished or finishing in Cornwall is pretty mm-hmm. bonkers. Uh, we were asked about doing a, um, something in a field. Mm-hmm. Given a field, what can you do in a field? So we decided we did. Jamie's been working with this symbol for for many, many for forty years now, pretty much, which is an anarchy A symbol with a V for victory in it, mm. which he calls his over symbol. So we proposed that we install this symbol, uh, like a hundred meter across symbol in this field, a bit like a massive corn circle, but with mm. wildflowers instead, but orienting it to north. And with each the eight, each of the points around the circle, you have to see the symbol to really understand it. But each of the eight points around the symbol representing different points of what's called the Druidic Eightfold Year. So the the tip of the A, which is orientated to the north, represents the summer solstice mm. in this mad wheel of the year, and the bottom tip of the V represents the winter solstice. And there are two. There's a horizontal bar, so we have the autumn and spring equinoxes, and there's four other quarter-day festivals as well in the Druidic understanding of that. So we pr- we proposed this thing with a whole series of um, a whole series of festivals around the year, and uh, by God, they went for it. It was Excellent. a really mad idea, and they said, "Yeah, we'll do that. That seems great. We'll do that." And we were thinking, Brilliant. "Crazy." <laughs> 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 but they they went for it good for mm-hmm. them and um they were amazing this was at heligan mm. at the lost gardens of heligan amazing and uh we completed the first cycle the first year and then replaced the uh the wild flower much of the wild flowers with a uh, a strain of wheat heritage wheat called emma e m m e r which is um uh it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful wheat that needs no um no fungicides or herbicides no uh fertilizers it's not an f1 variety so you can harvest it and and, and sow it again next year so this this seems like a very nice hippie to be uh project but actually it's a fuck you to many corporate agricult agri- agrochemical companies because they hate that kind of stuff. They want you to buy their their own grain. They want you to buy their fertilizer and um, pesticide. Mm. They want you to. They want to make sure they got you hooked in every year. And many farmers are actually contracted to these big agricultural companies to actually produce from their from the, uh, the products that these companies make year in year out. And mm. if they try and break that contract, they're they're screwed. Yeah. So uh, it was a it's actually it looks like it's a kind of nice spiritual thing. But actually, there's a political agenda behind it as well. Mm-hmm. We also want people to think about the cycle of the year and our connection to the planet. Of course, we're all doing that in some way now, but we're not doing it enough still. Yeah. You know, we've got to think about 
the turning of the of the of the of the stars and our, our place in the cosmos. And mm. this project was is kind of about that. So we're standing there in this field with the kind of local chapter of the Druid Order, <laughs> uh, kids from the brought in by the Sensory Trust, various people. Funny enough, there's a guy just calling in now on my phone from this this project right now. He's a farmer down in Cornwall, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, we're, we're doing this. That was one of the maddest things that we actually did together, and it's still on now, actually. Amazing. Yeah. And as um, Jamie's kind of partner in crime, curator, yeah. however you want to label yourself. Oh, buddy. Yeah, what kind of uh, – could you give us a, an example of the kinds of negotiations or the kinds of things that you would facilitate to make that project happen? Uh, well, that involves – as with any kind of cur- large curatorial thing, uh, there's a lot of back-level chit-chat, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of meetings, uh, a lot of discussion and trying to find the, find the sweet spot. And this has happened um, This happened a lot, really. This ha- happens when you're doing a big project. If you're installing uh, the Pompidou, for example, there's a lot of, a lot of meetings in large mm-hmm. rooms glasses of water in front of you that you've got to get through that yeah and uh, it's inevitable because there's a lot of people involved and um you've got a fairly large vision that needs that needs fleshing out and there's a lot to be done it's mm. not just hanging pictures on the walls you can not just got to curate the show you got to think about the production of a lot of work uh you got to think about the needs of production and the way the means of production um you got to think about the the way you uh publicize the show mm. and how it functions in a larger way how do you pay for things you know so there's a lot of a lot to think about there's a lot to consider mm. you know and really it, if you think about the needs of a of a small exhibition in a small gallery it's many of the same things just ramped up by x numbers yeah, yeah. I'm thinking as you're talking about the extraordinary things that you've made happen with Jamie and the lengths that you've gone to to make his ideas and his dreams come true. Mm. And I know from working with so many artists myself that, you know, sometimes the the bit when you've done your job well, people don't really know that you've done it. And you don't take any credit and you don't get any thanks. And so I'm wondering, you know, now that you know what you know, what, you know, what do you think was in it for you? Oh gosh, that's such a great, great question. Um, There is with all the artists I've worked with in those kind of situations, there's an enormous amount of satisfaction in being able to sit in the room unnoticed, unrecognized, and watch people look at work and talk, hear them talk about it. Hopefully they're saying nice things. Mm-hmm. But you're you're in a very privileged situation of knowing um, all the agonies of getting that work on the wall, all the trials that have, ta- that have taken place to show something which is hopefully serene and beautiful in its way but you know the truth of what's really happening there and um you've been part of it you've been a very important and integral part of that process the artist's work is is of course the primary thing but there's many many people involved in putting on a good good exhibition many many people mm, and 
in knowing that you've helped facilitate such amazing reactions, responses, maybe somebody was inspired just like you when you saw the body map image. Mm. It takes it takes a lot of learning very quickly on your feet sometimes, sometimes taking that leap before you're ready, not knowing whether you can pull it off, not knowing whether it's going to be received well. So those moments of faith, we know they're scary for an artist. I'm thinking about those personal qualities that you developed along the way, John, because alongside Jamie, you've also worked with another very well-known artist, Nan Golden. And I, I wonder if you could say a little bit in, in a moment about how that came to be, but also just thinking about those qualities, because you say, I say straight man and comedy duo, you say midwife. And we know that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be remiss to say there are certain qualities that good mid- midwives have. There are certain qualities that people who work in those roles need to have in order to create a safe, welcoming environment for somebody else to do their, the thing they need to do well. So I know you're a super modest person, uh, but I, I, I'm thinking about how, to, in, how we can inspire the people that are listening to this podcast in thinking, you know, it's a, everybody has a place in the arts and the people that have done the kinds of roles that you've done are incredibly important to enabling creativity to happen in the in the world. And everybody needs a John. Everybody needs so. everybody needs somebody who can help walk shoulder to shoulder, who can have faith, who can champion you who can help navigate or negotiate the language of a context that you might find strange or doesn't make sense or you don't agree with. And I know that I know because I've been there, there are occasional personal costs to being that person. I'm wondering how have you navigated that, John? Gosh, um, it has come with, I mean, these adventures do come at a heavy price sometimes. It can be an expensive toll on the soul. Uh, but, of course, we do it because on balance, it's worthwhile. Mm. On balance, we, we see the value of what we're doing. Mm. Um, but it is it is sometimes difficult to negotiate that, Kerry. It is to be, as you say, to, to be... As Nan, as Nan would say, to go to the mattresses, which is a kind of ma- uh, mafia term. Go to the mattresses. Are you prepared to go to the mattresses, yeah. Oh, I've never means, heard that. It's about going to, uh, you know, to take, <laughs> it's a funny term. It's about what it means is to, uh, is to do the hit and then, mm. go, then go to the safe house. Wow. The mattresses in the safe house. Yeah. Amazing. Are you prepared to do that? Because sometimes you've got to do that. You've yeah. got to do that because the institution or whatever is is really not they're not playing ball or they're not they're not seeing what the artist needs to do. Mm-hmm. And they because particularly in institutions, people literally become institutionalized. Mm. 
and uh, they want to get through this in as simple a way as possible. They don't want to fight. They don't want that. They don't want to kind of, they don't want to get rolled around in the dirt. Yeah. But that's our job sometimes to roll around in the dirt. And they, they, you know, sometimes there's a conflict. There can be a heavy conflict. So um, as Carrie, I'm sure you've seen many times, there can be some tense times. Yeah. They there can. can very tense times. I can, <laughs> I can, I'm not going to name any names here, but I can tell you that I did have to once call up somebody who was the, at that point the director of the Pompidou in front of the artist and call them an asshole. <laughs> you had to. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would challenge anybody who's listening to this podcast to call up the current director of the company <laughs> call an asshole. Yeah, it might be a little harder. It might be, yeah, it, probably not something anybody really wants to do. And I have to tell you, I didn't want to do it, but I did it. You did it. And what you provoked your wrath, John? I wasn't wrathful at all. It wasn't my wrath. It was the artist's wrath. Ah. But funny enough, I, afterwards, I did speak to the director of the Pompidou and they said, uh, it's okay, I understand. <laughs> so, <laughs> so all was well that ended well. I did my job. And uh, survived for another day. It was That's okay. That's brilliant. So, from working with Jamie, is is that how you got to know Nan? How did yeah, that come about? It is crazily. Mm. It is. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I met met her because of the venue where we did that show, and um, and at some point, I just said to her, I've, "I've got to find another job in in this city. I've got to do something else." And she just said, "Come work for me." Amazing. Just like that. So literally like that, I, I went. And what year What year is that? That was 99, I think. Yeah. 99. 99. Amazing. So we're, getting, we're, we're coming towards the present now, I guess. Yeah. Only so, 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, 99. Amazing. Yeah. And so were you familiar with her work then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was. Yeah, okay. I was. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You've got to know what you're Mm. If you're going to work as uh, as somebody's right hand person in some ways, particularly in the art world, you've got to know something about what they're trying to do, what yeah. they're trying to achieve. And uh, I mean, Nan's very well known. There's not many people who are interested in art or work in the arts that don't know what Nan's about. Yeah. What, of course, they don't know what happens is what goes on under the hood, as it were, under the yeah. bonnet. Under the bonnet, Yeah. I can well. I can imagine, um, and I'm curious as to how long did it take before you found out what was under the hood. It, well, the very first thing I was asked to do was go to India, mm. and uh, I didn't go. Actually, I ended up not going on that thing. But I. But yeah, it was. It was pretty quick. It was pretty quick. You you learn quite fast, particularly when an artist has a fairly high turnover of people. Mm-hmm. You get an idea pretty quick about what their methods are. But uh, I stuck at it. Mm. She couldn't get rid of me. Mace, like a limpet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was too good. It was too, that, that, that rock was too interesting. It was fantastic. Mm. I mean, it was a very interesting time in, in Nan's career. She was, you know, she was rich. She was famous. And it was. It was good, you know. It was really good. It was just three years after her first big show at the Whitney, and uh, there were great opportunities coming. And uh, 
no one's going to turn that down. The question is, can you hang on? Yes. How did you hang on? Fingernails. Fingernails. (laughs) Sometimes fingernails. But she's an incredibly uh, generous person. And, um, oh, God, I learned so much, Kerry, in that time. I learned so much about not just about working in the art world, but but about people. Mm. What stands out for you? I know a lot about psychopharmacology now, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know what to avoid and what to take. <laughs> I'm uh, taking nothing. I've seen, the, I've seen the results. Yeah, I just, but you know, that's a really, I just because we know that not just artists and creative people, but all of our mental health has been, yeah. you know, uh, under fire over the last few years. And and thank God we're moving through an age where we're more willing to talk about it yes. and more willing to talk about, you know, um, mental health and illness being just part of being alive, you know. So, again, there's something in your tenaciousness and resilience and your desire to support somebody through that period, you know, that's, um, is you're learning on, on the spot and meeting some extraordinary characters. Who, who do you recall from that period of time working with Nan that stands out for you? Who did you find interesting and intriguing oh, and inspiring? Oh, I fell in love with so many people. I really did. And I still hold many of these characters, many of these people it, with so much love from my side, at least. Somebody who stands out. I'm not going to mention two people, actually. That's okay. Somebody who really stands out is a wonderful character called Joey Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Now, Joey is over six foot in heels. Mm-hmm. Uh, she speaks seven languages. Whoa. She's an expert on uh, 15th century Italian painting. She worked as a call girl for years, transatlantic call girl on on, uh, going back and forth across the Atlantic on Concord. She knows every corner of the Ritz in Paris. Amazing. (laughs) She was a big character. She still is a big character. She's absolutely incredible, Joey. And she was one of Nan's great muses. Mm. And a, a really wonderful person. And for a kind of straight boy from Bromley when you're in the uh, trajectory of people like that and they accept you in mm. it's a it was extraordinary to me it really really was you know we're you know I love her very much and she's a fr- good friend and I have to say for a, for a lad from Bromley I know way too many I know way more than my quota of New York Queens than yeah. I should the other and person I want to mention because She's probably, I really want to shout, give her a shout out because she's she's probably moving off this planet in the next day or so. Oh. It's somebody called Sharon Niesp. Mm-hmm. Now, Sharon was another of Nan's old friends. Uh, and Sharon uh, was one of uh, John Waters' great stars. Mm-hmm. And Sharon was also the lover of another John Waters star called Cookie Muller. Ah, uh, yes, I'm just reading her book, actually. Are you? Yes. Which yeah. one? Um, I'm not sure. My friend just gave it to me. I actually didn't look at the front cover. It's a black one. Okay. I think it m- might be the second instalment. Do you have it to hand? Okay. Brilliant. 
Yeah. She's absolutely, she's such a great writer, Cookie. She's an re- absolutely brilliant writer. The, so, the little story with Cookie is that Sharon and Cookie were lovers for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, and then Cookie fell in love with uh, a man, Vittorio. Both of them fell ill with HIV very quickly because of drug use. Vittorio, they married, Vittorio died, and six months later, Cookie was dying as well. Mm. But Sharon moved back in to nurse Cookie through her through her last months. Why? And um, she's an extraordinary person. She's, as I said, she's. This was years and years and years ago. But Sharon is now, you know, she's in her home in the East Village mm. and passing as yeah. we speak. Yeah, I'm so um, sorry, John. For Sharon, uh, good luck out there, Sharon. I've, the cosmos is a big place, but you'll fill it with that filthy laugh of yours. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I think what I heard as you were talking and what I wanted to come back to was that you mentioned love, mm. you know, and I, I think that's such a fundamental thing when we're working with artists and creative people, I think. And it's something that I talk to my team a lot, actually, with um, about the fact that we – love artists you know that we love creative people and that in that it is a marriage when you really connect to somebody and you decide through thick and thin that you are going to help them realize their vision that one of the joys of intimacy is that it's not always easy and if you really love somebody it is through the shit as well as the good stuff and that it is, it's through knowing that somebody is willing to walk with you through that thick and thin, that you can actually tap into what you should be doing, what you could be doing. And that works both ways, doesn't it? So through all those challenging times, and I can only imagine the scrapes that you've been in over the years, John, <laughs> I can imagine by the hook or the crook you've, you've made it through. And that, you know, that was light was on your side because there was a desire there to somehow do good in the world and to commit Mm. to the people that you've committed to. They've been afforded the good grace to do incredible things, but you've also benefited from the adventure, from Mm. the, the extraordinary life that you've lived and, you know, got away with murder looking like a straight man. <laughs> I can say. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess, um, well, you put it very articulately, Carrie, um, because you're, you're quite right. You do have to, you do have to love it to really commit to it. Mm. And if you don't love it, you know, you're going to do okay. But I don't think you're going to go to the mattresses for it. Yeah. You know? And um yeah, it's it's a it's it's a funny role being doing doing the kind of thing that we do because as as you as maybe people have worked out by now, I'm not an institutional curator. I don't work for an institution, I work for myself. Yeah. And uh so you know, doing these doing doing shows is um Sometimes it's a struggle. It really is. Funny enough, just today I got in a scrape with an institution because they want me to come and install uh, a show. 
And uh, they weren't even going to pay for my train fare and accommodation to come and do it. Mm. And I was saying, this is an out- this is outrage. It's outrageous. Yeah. You want to benefit from the artist's work. You working in the institution get paid. But yeah. why doesn't the artist or the artist's representative yeah. get get paid? It's, yeah. out- it's wrong. It's completely yeah. wrong. And eventually they did look down the back of the sofa and they have found some money for, for me yeah, to go. Yeah, three groats. <laughs> yeah, three groats, exactly, and a bit of fluff. Yeah. But uh, but I do think that's, I do think it needs shouting, needs calling out that, that there are so many situations where artists are exploited, frankly, because mm. of their, because of their wish to get their, have their work seen. Um, I think art fairs can be like this as well. I really do think this. I, I can think yeah. of one in particular. I won't name it because it's not fair to do so. But after some years of doing that particular art fair, I, it just it was like the light bulb came on that, hang on, we were paying to be the entertainment. Yeah. And the attraction for the organisers of this fair. So the organisers get paid on the button because yeah. you pay to do it. Everybody else gets paid. The electricians, the drivers, the insurance companies, blah, blah, blah. The caterers. Who doesn't get paid? Yeah. You know who doesn't get paid. Yeah, the artists, the curators and the gallerists. Exactly. Yeah. Um, On that, I I do want to stay with it for a moment before we conclude, um, because I think there is often um, an idea that freelance curators earn a lot of money from institutions. Laughter breaks <laughs> <time> in Brighton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how have you earned your money over the years, John? You know, it just how have you um, pieced it all together as an independent? Well, working with Nan, I got a I got a wage. Yeah. I was running her studios in Paris and New York and I got a wage as simple mm-hmm. as that. I yeah. was, you know, I was doing the curatorial stuff with Nan. Uh, with her, it has to be said, not by myself. She, I was just helping her do whatever she yes. wanted to do. Uh, but with Jamie, for example, or uh, helping bring other shows together, it's it's really it's tough. It's really really hard trying to find uh, trying to find a way of, of of paying the bills. It's not easy. It, I, it's not. I have to tell you, Kerry, I wouldn't recommend taking the path I've taken because it's been very bumpy. Yeah, financially and yeah. emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. been very bumpy, but it's been a great adventure. Yeah, there is no price. Unfortunately, having an interesting life is uh, a creative life. I think mm. there are there are costs for all of us. But with that in mind, thinking back through the lens of today, looking back through your time with Nan, you know, and again, this is a funny way to think of it, but because I, I know that you're modest. I know that you won't want to blow smoke up your own bottom. I know that. I can't. I can't get around there. I, no, but, you know, there's time to learn everything. But <laughs> <laughs> I really would love to take a moment just to celebrate. You know, what, what would you say is one of your proudest moments of working with Nan? Oh, God. Good question. It's a funny one, maybe the first one that springs to mind. It's a funny one where I thought, "Wow, this is crazy," and that was when um, when we opened Nan's show at the Whitechapel in two thousand and one. Mm. We were late, of course, for the opening. <laughs> so many things to do. You got to get the frock right. Everything's got to yeah. be just right. There's a hundred different outfits firing through. They're coming. You get 
haul him in from Dior or whatever. Now's yeah. got to try on. And I will never forget when we got to. I mean, this is such a stupid thing to say, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Yeah, when we got to um, when we got to the Whitechapel, there was a huge crowd outside. I was thinking something's going on. There must be some some of something <laughs> something going on. I don't know what that is. And we got out of the car and flashbulbs went insane. Mm. It was crazy. Yeah. And we kind of fought our way in there. We were like two hours late, but it didn't matter. It really didn't matter because Nan had arrived. Yeah. And she was like a a rock star at that point. It was incredible. I think that given having given you know, given the success of the recent film, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, yes. I think we're going to get back to that situation now, but still. And I remember Nan's gallerist from New York, Matthew Mark, saying to me, I have never seen that before. I've never in all my years seen a crowd respond with that much excitement and enthusiasm for an artist. And that came from the simple fact that Nan's work really touched people. Mm. It really, really touched people. And they were excited to have this creative character in front of them. And that actually did make me very proud for her. I was so proud proud of her really at that point and still extremely proud of her i you know i couldn't be prouder of nan for what she's achieved i really couldn't but that was a real wow moment carrie i thought my god the art can really touch people it can really really touch people because you know often you know openings are that can be fun and you know or people go to exhibitions and yeah it's good you tick the box you've seen it it's it's fine it's good you know it's serves a purpose but this was something else yeah this amazing. was really a different level of uh of communication and and uh yeah that that was something i got a million other examples but that was a good one. Oh, do you know there's a whole there's a whole nan podcast i'm sure in there for you which <laughs> the series of podcasts yeah but most i would the love they wouldn't allow it on this they wouldn't allow I it on the i don't think do you know i would so love to hear that maybe we'll save save for another time but everything that you've learned now, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh my God, don't. Don't do <laughs> <laughs> Go and join the Navy. <laughs> uh, what, would I, what would I say? Uh, um, I would say, uh, don't worry so much. Uh. I think that's what I would say. Don't worry so much because many times you're doubting yourself. You think, this is crazy. What the hell am I doing? But in the retrospect, you survive it, you get through it, and uh, you get something valuable out of it. And that's surely that's, isn't that what life is about? Try to survive it and get making it valuable? Yeah. So yeah let's, do, let's try and do that, right, Kerry? Let's make yeah, it let's valuable try. experience that we can look back on and go, you know what? I did that. Yeah. That happened because I was brave. Yeah. So if I can say anything to people that, if anybody's still listening, I'm sure they've all turned off by now because I'm so boring. But they say, I would say, you know, be brave. Be brave. Yeah. Be brave. I love that. That That's something that I say to everyone in our creative community, to be brave, bold, and brilliant. There we are. Good. And I would say right back at you, John. 
Do you know, I, I wanted to speak to you because I find you incredibly inspiring for being brave and being willing to put yourself outside of your own comfort zone to see what value you can add to creatives and to ride those waves. And I think it's extraordinary that after the career that you've had so far, here you are in your town, still doing it again, giving people an opportunity to have a voice, but also I think it's really important that we take a moment, you know, to celebrate your voice because there's a a very distinct connecting thread between the things that you've done and experienced, the people that you've loved and lived with and lived through life with. And I think that, you know, thank goodness that we have people like you in the creative community, enabling people to be themselves. So long may it continue. And uh, yeah, let's keep demanding the impossible. Thank you, Kerry. Thanks so much for coming and joining us. Thanks, John. Lots of love. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. Thank you.